Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, as always, presented by our good friends over at Scentlock. Um, as we gear up for whitetail hunting, in my opinion, what really sets Scentlock apart is their activated carbon technology for maximum odor absorption. I would highly recommend you guys, as you gear up this fall, to check out our boys at Scentlock. I am incredibly excited about this episode. Um, I think this episode will be one of the most beneficial episodes uh, of this podcast uh, when it comes to whitetail hunting, to talk about different tactics to use in the field, uh, but also why those tactics work and what goes on in a deer's head to make those tactics work. I've got Dr. Carl Miller from the University of Georgia, um, which I must say, Philip, are you an Arkansas fan? I <laughs> Okay. Raise well, listen. I tell everybody we don't have to we don't have to argue with people about sports because we don't have a dog in the fight. We suck at everything. So um, I don't have to get into it with Dr. Carl Dr. Carl Miller from the University of Georgia doctorates in wildlife management. Carl, how are you, man? Doing great. And all you have to do is look at who uh, ranked as national champions last year and what need I say more? That's all you got to look at. <laughs> that that is it. And we were happy to win four or five. That's what we were happy with. Um, so, Carl, how did you, I? Let me just preference this. I reached out to a couple guys. I wanted to do this episode and I wanted to do it big. Um, I want this. My goal behind this episode is for um, this to be the type of episode that uh, whitetail hunters go back to at the beginning of every season to just get refreshed on. And so I started reaching out to, to some of my friends in the industry and saying, who do, who do I need to do this, this episode? And Brian Murphy, who you guys will recognize from an earlier episode, um, yep. what we did on, um, on where to hunt, Brian helped with that episode. Uh, he said, listen, Dr. Carl Miller is the guy when it comes to understanding deer vocalizations. And I said, well, that's who I want then. So Carl, how did you get into this, man? Where, where'd you get your start? Why'd you do what you do? Oh boy, that's a that's a long story. Take the whole podcast on this thing, uh, but uh, tr kind of keep it short. I grew up in northern Pennsylvania, up in the big woods that they call it, uh, in a deer hunting family. We lived and breathed, and I know I lived and breathed deer hunting, probably from the time I came out of the womb, um, maybe even before that. Because I, <laughs> interesting side note, I, I backdated my birthday, which was in August, back to when I, you know, nine months, and I. Figured out that I was probably a honey, I'm home from deer camp baby. 
because <laughs> I was right about the end of deer season in Pennsylvania. So maybe I come by it naturally. So there you go. Anyway, anyways, I you know I I wanted to do this for my entire life. This has been my dream vocation. I've spent you know first couple of years in college doing something different because I listened to guidance counselors and parents, and they told me you know don't go into wildlife. There's no jobs. I thought finally got to a point where I figured you know somebody's getting the jobs, and if you're good, you'll get a job. So, you know, I, I, I switched gears and got, got a chance to pursue wildlife and I actually got a chance to come to the University of Georgia and work with one of the top guys in the field at the time, Dr. Larry Marchington, uh, who was my mentor, and got my PhD with him uh, back in the mid 80s. And then I was hired on here at the university and have been here ever since. Uh, basically, part time teaching, you know, part of my responsibilities was teaching, but Part of my responsibility was research primarily on white-tailed deer. What a dream job. What a dream life I've had. Yeah, absolutely. We've also got, we've got Philip Vanderpool, um, another guy I reached out to um, my friends over at Woodhaven. Um, and I, I said, man, I need somebody who is a known big buck killer by calling them in. And he said, well, here's Philip's phone number. And I said, there we go. So, We've got Philip Vanderpool from the Virtue TV. Philip, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. And by the way, uh, Mr. Carl, a uh, pleasure to also have you on here as well <laughs> to be with you. Uh, same, Phil. Same with you, Phil. You know, you know what I'm most excited about having Carl on, and I've had a couple, um, you know, scientific minds. That's probably not the word to use, but a couple educated people who really give the facts behind things. Um, and I always enjoy those because we have a whole lot of just, this is what works and, and this is how we do things. But I really like hearing the, the, why does this work? And, and, you know, why does a deer respond the way it does to these things? So I'm super excited, uh, to dive into this. Philip, how'd you get your start, man? Well, of course, uh, you know, being an avid hunter here from the Ozarks, I started at a very early age, hunted public land, and was fortunate enough to win the Arkansas Big Buck Classic a couple years in a row with in the archery division back in my really early days. <laughs> uh, shot my first Pope and Young Whitetail back in 1990, and it had a lot of deer credited before that, but I worked with hunter specialists for almost 16 years. I I was the guy behind the scenes running the camera and in front of the camera as well. But um, I videoed Stan Potts, Greg Miller, uh, Pat Reeve, you know, Rick White, Alex Relich, about everybody you can think of in the hunting industry, Bill Jordan. I've videoed all these guys over the years, but I've also been an avid hunter. Mainly bow hunting has been my thing. Decoying, rattling, grunting, wheezing, calling deer. I can't tell you the number of deer that I've taken over the years. Um, I've got a wall full of them. I've been blessed to take two over 200 inches with a bow all on video. And I don't know, several Boone Crockett class whitetail along with many Pope and Young. I've just got a, a, a wall full. They're, they're laying in the floor. <laughs> I've been blessed. There so, you go. Man, I love the, the aspect of calling deer in. That is That has been my niche. That's awesome. No, I, uh, so basically the, the, what I want to cover in this episode, uh, and what I really want to get to in this episode, I was taught at a young age, uh, you have, you avoid a deer's sight, smell and hearing. Um, you know, I was taught sit down, shut up, don't move, don't make a peep. Um, and then in my adult life, when I started growing up and started doing this on my own, 
I was absolutely terrified to ever blow a call. I was absolutely terrified to ever hit a rattle horn. Uh, I was absolutely terrified to ever leave any scent in the field. You know, I was taught, I was taught you, you take as little scent in the field as possible. So the idea of adding scent or adding noise or adding a visual like a decoy scared the mess out of me. But what I learned as I, as I grew up and matured, what I'm really doing with calls and, and decoys and, and scents is I am deterring the deer's senses from me onto something else. And it, and it gives me an advantage. And so I want to dive into those three things. I want to dive into calling, uh, using sense, um, and using decoys and, and how all those three work together and then tactics surrounding each one of them. Uh, and, and again, I'm really excited, uh, to hear Philip, how you've done things, how you found success. And then Carl hear the reasoning behind, what a deer really, how a deer really responds to that and what's going on in the deer's head to make them react to those things. Um, before we dive in, I got to give a shout out to my friends over at Season Report. Season Report um, is an online hunting almanac, uh, all-inclusive um, outdoor almanac, I should say, um, for hunting, foraging, gardening, everything in between. So what it does is I can save the places I hunt down to the county, and then it gives me a calendar view um, of that county of when season dates open, when they overlap, uh, when, you know, when rifle season overlaps with bow season, muzzleloader season, so on and so forth. I can see them on a calendar view, which is super easy to understand. I can see all the state rules, laws, regulations, bag limits. I can see all of those things on one easy-to-use, easy-to-understand platform for all the counties that I hunt in. So I would highly recommend you to check out Season Report. It is the best way that you'll spend $10. Use code HUNTING101, that's all caps, and it'll make that entire platform just 10 bucks for you. It's incredible to use. I would highly recommend it. So uh, I want to start with the audio side of things, with calling in animals. Um, so Philip, let's, well, actually, Carl, let's start with, um, what deer hear, like on a daily basis, what are deer hearing in the woods? Um, if we're not there, what, what kind of vocalizations are they making to themselves that they're hearing? Okay. You want to know more about not how they, how, how good they hear, but you want to hear what they're making as far as vocalizations. Yeah, correct. Okay. Well, we just, I mean, boy, this has been a long, long time ago, back in the 80s. Uh, one of the first studies that was done that looked at deer vocalizations, where we, in our research facility, we recorded all the different vocalizations and looked at the behavioral context that those vocalizations were made in. And we were able to record um, 11 different sounds that were made by, by deer that we thought might have some communicative significance, uh, one of which may not. And I think there's another one that we actually didn't record that is a kind of a rare sound, but we kind of a, a group them into kind of categories. There's maternal neonatal sounds, that's sounds that are made by the mother in, or the fawns in their association with each other, like the maternal grunt, the, the, the doe talking to the fawn, uh, telling the fawn to either to come or, 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 you know, just communication with the fawn. And then the fawn has a couple sounds that it makes from a mew, which is a very, kind of mild care soliciting sound. It sounds just like a mew, like a cat's mew. You know, to a uh, more of a, a bleat, you know, that's a little more intense care soliciting call, calling for their mother, calling for, you know, some saying, I need something from you. And then there's another sound that they make called a nursing whine, which they're, while they're nursing, they sometimes make that sound. 
those are those you know like the maternal grunt that might be something that could be used during bow season but some of the other calls it might be or the vocalizations they make that might be more useful so uh, the, some of the calls like the aggressive calls that bucks make there's like a, a, actually three of them one is the aggressive grunt and then there's the grunt snort and the grunt snort wheeze which is just a compilation of the three put together and it's the the grunt that's you know indicating to another buck that you know some type of a signal of potential aggression the grunt snort which is a little bit higher and then the grunt snort wheeze which is a very intense willingness to engage another animal another buck into you know in a, in a, in a fight you know in a dominance fight those can be very useful as far as um as far as you know calling deer as well as i think philip will agree in the right situations and then there's also the tending grunt, the, you know, the, 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 the creaky door grunt guttural sound that a buck makes while he's tending a doe, which could also be very useful in, in a uh, calling situation. Those are some of the basics. There's a couple more that are probably minor, minor calls, but uh, those are probably the most important ones for a hunter to know. So, Philip, before I get to you, Carl, how far away did deer hear these calls that we make? Boy, that's a that's a tough question because it's going to depend on the, the habitat you're in, uh, how open it is versus how much canopy you got out there. What kind of just going to depend somewhat on the conditions, you know, uh, uh, the humidity and so forth. Um, but picture this: a white-tailed deer's hearing is really not any better than ours as far as being able to detect sounds. You know, our research and, and our researchers of others have pretty much shown that their hearing is is about identical to ours. Uh, although they can very, they're very good at picking out what the sounds are that are important to them because they live in the woods 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. right. Yeah. So they they know what they're supposed to hear and they know what they're not supposed to hear. Whereas we're only out there for a few hours, you know, once a week maybe. So, given which that, which is exactly it, why if a hedge apple falls, a deer doesn't run. But if you stomp on the tree stand, they're going to run. <laughs> it's exactly why when you're on the deer stand looking down at a deer and you hear a sound behind you and you turn to find out what the sound is and the deer never picked his head up because it was a squirrel and the deer knew it was a squirrel. Right. right? So they, they know those sounds, just like you know the difference between a nickel and a dime dropping on the floor. They yeah. know what the, those sounds in their environment are supposed to be. So given that, that sound will carry about as far as, you know, a human could hear that same sound. That's a good way to judge it. So am I fair to say if a deer's hearing is a lot like ours, does it give you room to mess up in a call, if that makes sense? Does it give you room to mess up in a call? I mean, if it doesn't sound exactly like a deer, do they immediately go, that's not a deer? Or, does it, or, or do they just respond to that was the sound of a grunt? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, uh, deer, all deer have different vocalizations or different tones to their vocalizations, just like humans have different tones to their vocalizations. Right. A grunt's not a grunt, this is not a grunt, and so on. So different deer make different sounds. And I think it's sometimes it's really hard to mess up a call. You know, some of the worst calls I've ever heard coming, you know, of, of deer calls I ever heard came from a deer. You know, so... <laughs> And it's the same yeah. thing with turkeys. You know, the, you know, some of the worst turkey calling I've ever heard came from turkeys. Uh, so I, I don't think it's really different. I, I don't think I'd be that worried about messing up a call. Uh, maybe I'd be, we'd probably be more worried about calling way too much 
than I would be about messing up at all. Yeah. So, Philip, um, just so everybody knows, I, I reached out to the guys at Woodhaven, um, which I've got some calls sitting here that I'm excited to look at. Um, I reached out to the guys at Woodhaven and said, who do I need to do this? And they said, Philip. I said, that's who I'm going to get then. Um, so walk me through an, an average scenario. We'll talk middle of the rut. Um, in the in the rut, what does your calling look like? And 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 I'll you, be a hundred percent. You have liberty here to make the calls. I want you to blow some calls and show people the noises you're trying to make. Um, and then Carl will come back and and look at what are the noises he's making causing a deer to do. Well, it depends on my setup for one thing. If I'm decoying or if I'm just say I'm sitting in in a timber set. A lot of times I hunt on the edge of, you know, obviously of, of, of a food plot or a field when I'm using a decoy. But now if I'm in the timber, say it's a morning hunt and I get in there and climb in before daylight. Once it starts breaking daylight, you know, I kind of listen, let everything settle down. And then then I'll just go into a series of grunts and 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 just play it off there and see what happens see if i hear anything because one thing about it being in the timber you can hear them a lot of times coming through the leaves which gives you an advantage but uh i'll just hit them with a series of grunts and i may even do a uh maybe a buck round and it depends where i'm hunting if i'm hunting in the midwest because i hunt all over and if i'm hunting in the midwest i'm pretty aggressive especially during that time of year now, one thing that works when you said the middle of the rut, if a buck is with a doe during that time, what works is, in my opinion, you can't hardly get that big deer away from the doe. But what you can do is throw out a bleat and get that doe's curiosity, thinking that's how I've shot a couple really good bucks by doing that. But I've usually got a visual on them where I can watch them and then lure them in that's why i kind of like to hunt with that decoy because it kind of takes takes their attention and puts it on the decoy now it can hurt you too those sometimes will avoid especially a buck decoy but i'm not afraid to go and hit them with some calls and 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 i'll stop and i'll listen for a little bit because a lot of deer don't react the same way some of them will come running in to that grunt call or, or have their ears laid back come looking for for that other buck some of them come in, they kind of run around, and they're all timid because they're not as dominant, but they know that there's a buck in the area, and that's the ones you have to kind of watch out for. But when you do it, just make sure, because they can see you out there at a distance easier than they can if they're straight under, if that makes sense, because they don't have to look up as high. And I love to get a visual on the deer. Then I can coax him with my calls, and whether I want to just hit him with a grunt or a long, a gated grunt, or if I just want to maybe do a snort wheeze. Snort wheeze is a closer call. It can make or break you. If the buck sometimes don't have that aggression, it may turn him and he may run away. And grunting's just like turkey call. You don't grunt every single animal that you see out there. I love the scenario where I see him and I can control when to call at him more than blind. The blind calling works, don't get me wrong. And I do it, especially if I'm in the timber where it's a thick area. Uh, but you got to be cautious doing it because they can pinpoint you and they're going to try to get downwind of you. So, you know, scent control is another thing that you got to make sure that, you know, you're doing right when you get in the field too, when you're grunting. So with a cold call sequence, so let's, let's start with, okay. 
let's start with the progression. A cold call sequence, you have not seen the buck. It's sure. been 30, 40 minutes. You, things are slow. You're trying to make something happen. How do you start that progression with cold calling? Okay. Now, in the Midwest, okay, because I'm going to be more aggressive. When I'm hunting Midwest deer because they're more aggressive as a, as a whole. I'm going to I'm going to sit here. And I'm got I've got this little ninja intimidator grunt call. I'm going to get up there and I'm just going to take this. And I'm just going to I may start out kind of elongated grunt. And then I just lay it back down and I'll give it five ten minutes to see what's going to happen. I, I repeat that pretty often, often because I'm aggressive. I want to make something happen. Now, Especially what is when that? I know there's big bucks in the area. So, Carl, what is it if if a if a buck cruising through the area hears that? What is he thinking? Why does he respond to that to come in? You know, and I, I appreciate what what Philip just described because he 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 does exactly what I do as far as you know the timing of the you know, using the different calls. And I think it's extremely important to know what time of the rut you're in, what, whether it's, you know, like pre-rut, the middle of the peak of the rut or post-rut, and selecting your calls. Using what he's described right there, which is basically the, the, the would be called a tending grunt, or a, sometimes a buck's just, even, even if he's not tending, we'll walk through the woods with that. It's an attitude grunt. It's a buck's, you know, either saying that I'm, I'm you know, I'm, 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 I'm right for a fight. I'm right for a, a woman. What one of the it's two? It's like the know? noisy guy at the bar. He is exactly. Or it could be also the same thing as the tending grunt. We where the you know this buck had he, he's right behind the doe and he's tending her as well. And you a lot of times that's a little bit more of a subtle uh, than than the the uh, the louder aggressive grunt. But basically, it's a time of you know when he's when that that grunt. Is a time that I, that's something that I would probably not use as much during the peak of the rut, because of what Philip said. Is that was a time when most of the bucks had, may already be with the doe, yep. and they will pro- try, probably try to turn that doe away from you. I've had that happen many times where they've tried to turn to, until I've learned better, and even more importantly, that grunt, that the snort wheeze, which is so aggressive. You know, if a buck's with a doe, why is he going to go come into you when he's got the doe already and with the yeah. chance of losing her? So he's going to take her and turn her. Now, those two calls can also be very effective pre-rut or post-rut when he's out cruising looking. And that's the, that's the time you want to use those where he got a chance to say, hey, maybe I can come in and take one, you know? So what is a snort wheeze? What are they telling, what are they telling the other buck when they snort wheeze? Typically, when you see that snort wheeze, well, it's the most aggressive sound that a deer can make. And we, if we're in the deer pens... <laughs> at the university when we hear the snort wheeze and, and we have some antler bucks in there it's time for us to start looking for the fence right yeah you know because it, it's a it's a it's a challenge that means that, that they fully intend to follow through with that challenge yeah and it's usually a company with their hair standing on end their ears pinned back their beads of sweat on their nose they're licking their they're, they're licking their nose as well very stiff weight legged gait those are the ones that when when you well, I'll let, I'll let Philip describe the hunting scenario with it, but that can be a very effective tool at positioning a buck after you get a chance to assess that buck in a field situation or in a wood situation where you can make an assessment of what, that, what kind of deer you're dealing with, what kind of buck you're dealing with. So <clears throat> on to my kind of cold calling, I'm not as aggressive. 
Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just because again, I'm, I'm, I just grew up super, super shut up and be quiet, but I have made a lot of things happen. I got to figure out how to blow a call into a mic, but what I figured out, I've made a lot of things happen by literally just breathing into a call. Just. And then just setting it down. Now that is, I will say this, that's, that's Kansas. That's wide open Oklahoma. That's, uh, you're wide open Missouri. They can hear forever. Um, so you, you, you do tone that back a little bit because if you get into it, they're hearing it for 700 yards. Uh, so I, that's, that's toned back quite a bit. Um, now if I'm in Ozark, um, you know, like where, where Phillip's from in the big, thick, big, thick timber, then you get a little louder, a little more aggressive. There's a whole lot more trees going to absorb that sound. It's not going to be as, as loud and, and just, you know, get a deer's attention like it would, you know, here in Kansas. And so I've made a ton of things happen from that. So don't think, uh, don't think you have to run in there and just start making some big loud noises. That's going to draw a deer's attention. Um, so you've cold called, you see a deer coming. Um, let's, let's, uh, what's the most hunted whitetail state? Do either of you know that? Pennsylvania, Michigan. Or, I'd say Texas. Yeah, or maybe Texas. I think Pennsylvania I, has the highest number of hunters, doesn't it? I, I think change? so. I think it's Pennsylvania. Um, so let's look at something. Pennsylvania, Michigan. Um, you've called the deer. You've cold called. You see a deer coming. What do you then progress to? Who, who are you asking? You. Sorry. <laughs> okay. If I see a deer coming. Yeah. And I've, and I've called to him. Well, first of all, I'm going to be looking what his next move is and how he's looking. If I know I can get away with it, if I'm trying to position him for a shot, and keep in mind, guys, I'm a, I'm pretty much a bow hunter or have been all my life. I'm talking about bow hunting and getting them in close, and I think right. that's probably what you're referring to here. Um, the one thing I try to do is see he's probably going to try to get downwind, but a lot of times them bucks, when they're in that mode, you can get away with a little bit more because – they're they're aggravated. Their ears are laid back. They're like an old dog. They may have their hair standing up on their back, kind of walking through their sideways a little bit, and they're coming. And what I try to do is just maybe if I need to reach for the call to try to position him, and that's what this tube really works good for, yeah. is to get that where you can throw that sound just a little bit, one way or the other, where you need to kind of position him. But keep in mind, if he's coming, I'm going to let him kind of figure out what the situation is because I don't want him to lock up on me. As long as he's moving and his head's turned where he's not going to just nail me in the tree, that's where you have to watch his body language. And then you can throw that call if you need to. You can just kind of tuck it in behind you and just, see? And you don't have to hit it very hard. Um, I usually say that, there again, depending how far away, I kind of save a snort wheeze a lot of times um, in that situation until I think that he may be starting to lose interest, maybe starting to walk away, or maybe he got just a little bit of a smell of something. And I kind of watch his body language there. And then, then if you want to do that snort wheeze, obviously this thing is awesome for the snort wheeze. And you can position him there. And if you're going to do that, and a lot of times, I like to, to make it sound real good. 
you draw it out. But when you got a deer close, you may just want to just barely bump the call and not be so loud. Kind of a just and and just kind of watch his body language there. And if he picks it up, when he's a little bit more of a distance, I'm gonna get a little more loud and aggressive here and really challenge him. Because I'm telling you, if that buck's got an attitude and he wants to brawl, he's gonna come like a martin to a gore. And I mean just I usually Yeah. And now you get that nasal sound out of that call. That's what I love about it. Now, Carl, when we call to a buck and we've got him, we've got his attention and he's responding and he's coming in. What are some things that deer, now that he's hurt another deer, what are some things he's going to do in order to bust us? In order to bust us? Yeah. Well, obviously, particularly, if, you know, with these aggressive calls, that buck is looking for the, the, the potential challenger. Right. And he's going to want to find, you know, he wants to he wants to show his stuff and he wants to, like Philip said, he's going to be coming in sidling with his hair standing up, making himself look as big as possible. But he also wants to size up that other guy. So he wants to see who it is. So he wants to find that other deer. So, you know, he's going to be very intent on trying to localize where that sound is. So it's very, you got to be very careful about calling when he's paying attention to you. Yep. And, yeah. you, you know, you, so you got to watch the deer themselves. And I mean, if this buck is like Philip said, if he's starting to turn, that's a perfect time to call because his eyes aren't on you. His ears aren't on you. But if he's looking at you or even in your direction, or even if he's looking somewhere to the side and he's got an ear cupped toward you, that's not the appropriate time to call because he's going to nail you. He's going to know exactly where that sound came from. So you got to be careful about, you know, they're very good because they've got those large external ears that helps them localize the source of a sound and they're able to move those ears. So, you know, watch the deer, watch the deer's head, watch his behavior. And again, he's what his, his goal is to find that other buck. And particularly if it's a tending run in there, he's thinking, well, maybe there's a doe in there and he's looking for that doe even more than he's looking for the buck because he may be able to run her off and take her as, as his own. Right. So that's where we get into, because again, um, and I don't think actually before we get into that, um, Carl, we have, we have, Talked about how far a deer hears. Do they hear in the same, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tone range that range. we hear? Um, yes. Oh, yeah, the same frequency range. There's been actually two studies that did that. We did one at Georgia, and then there was another one done at the University of Toledo. I'm using very, very different methods. We use a physiological study. They use a behavioral method, but we found the same thing. The deer's hearing capability is almost identical to ours, except that they hear the higher pitch, a little bit higher pitch than we do better. And we hear a little bit better in the lower range, but it's really not a huge difference. Gotcha. We hear in the one to four, they hear in the two to six, two to eight range. Uh, but it's really not that important. But the some of the important things that are, though, that a lot of the calls that deer make are in the range that they hear the best. But there are also other sounds that are that we make as hunters that are in the range that they hear the best, particularly the sound of a fabric against a, the bark of a tree. You know, it's really, just, yeah, th that's that is something you know that that is right at the peak of their hearing sensitivity. So you know, 
picking your camel by by the fabric is very important. Really, that's good to know. What uh, what are the other? What are the other? Are there any other big sounds that we as hunters make that really tip them off? Well, well, obviously any metal on metal, any anything that's that would be abnormal in the woods, right? Right. So you know, uh, the, the squeak of plastic, the the, the rustle of, of fabric, uh, the ting of metal on metal. I think those are probably three of the biggest. Yeah. So, Carl, are there any other calls that you implement um, while hunting that we haven't covered yet? Um, the only other one that I was—it's not really a call, but it is—it is it's a technique to call deer is is, is antler rattling. Yes. <laughs> so we need is, to cover we need to cover antler rattling and doe bleat. When do you use those two, uh, Philip? Well, um, first of all, the doe bleat uh, early season, obviously. I, I think Dr. Carl, Carl would agree with this early season, especially if you're not real particular what you're going to shoot, especially if you just want deer meat and to have fun. Uh, those does are still them maternal instincts. When you're doing some fawn bleach and some doe bleach and really getting on it, almost like a predator call, uh, seems to arouse them and, and have them to come in. But my favorite time now, now this is just me personally, because I love, the fact that the best time when the bucks are locked down with does and you're not seeing as much movement, there's not that cruising stage where they're looking for the does. Uh, occasionally you'll find them in between does, but when I see a big deer, especially a big buck, and he's with a doe like that, it seems like you can almost throw out the window. The, you might challenge him with a snort wheeze, make him think there's a buck in there. Don't get me wrong, I'll do that. But the bleat is what I usually get that doe's curiosity and try to coax her in just over there trying to look around and see. And a lot of times the bucks will follow and you may get that opportunity to, to shoot that buck where you normally wouldn't. Because a lot of times the calling don't work as near effectively unless that doe's just going to bring him right by anyway. But I've had very good luck with the bleat while the buck is tending the doe. So you almost use it more in that that rut lockdown phase when you think, man, the rut the rut must be over, and then three days later it's firing off, and yep. so those three days where it's like, man, where is all the deer went? That's when you really try to implement that. Yeah, another another scenario is if I've got a decoy out there and say I've got a buck and he's cruising, I've locked on him and I'm trying to call him in, he's not quite paying attention. Sometimes by throwing that bleed out there, then he'll think there's a doe in the area and it might change him, change him in his, in his route as well. I, the way I look at it, if, they're, if, if you see him and they're going to miss you anyway, what do you have to lose if he's 100, 150 yards out there, 200, whatever, and he's going to miss you? And that's why I like high visibility when, when I'm decoying and rattling ground. I do a lot of rattling. I've shot a lot of deer rattling and grunting, and I use them in sequence with the decoys it's and also use scents and lures with that just because of the situation i love to use the mock scrapes especially in that pre-rut stage before they're with them does to have that smell along with with the calling especially right. in, a, in a wood situation i love the mock scrapes so walk me through a uh 
Well, first off, do you implement rattling when you see a buck or is that just cold calling? Well, no, no. I, I, I personally, I love to be in an area, a high visibility area with the decoy when I'm rattling and I may be on the field edge and ideally you, you like to have where they won't come in from behind you as much. And, and you're playing the wind, you're going to have the decoy set up. I usually, depending which wind direction, but I kind of like to face the deer if, with the decoy. I use the DSDs and I set them up out there and I kind of face the antlers and the head towards me for the most part. And I'm trying to get the separation where the buck will come around to the head. If he's aggressive, he'll come to the head. If he's timid, he'll go to that tail every time. That's where the scent plays control. A lot of guys says, well, I don't want to put scent on my decoy. I'm telling you, I've learned in the last four or five years, I love to put that scent on the decoy because it'll bring them right to them. A lot of times they won't smell your human scent, you know, when you're trying to set it up. And I love to have a decoy at that spot at all times there. In other words, when I come in, I've got it hid. I can just grab him and set it up. I'm not carrying all that stuff in because I carry a lot of camera gear and I do a lot of self-videoing anyway. So, um, but in, in a situation like that, if i got a buck cruising, the first thing I'm going to do is see if I can get him attention with the butt call. And, and I just, I may, and just see what he does. He stops. If he hears it, then I kind of wait and see what he's going to do, how he's going to respond. But say he didn't hear it, and then, then I'm going to try the snort wheeze. I'll wheeze at him. And then if I don't do it, I'm want to pop them antlers and nine times out of ten that may be what you need to do in the first place example last year in missouri october the 24th northeast missouri i was up there at knox county whitetails there and hunting up close to the iowa line and there was a buck uh he was a little over 600 yards now the, the fresh cut cornfield we're on the edge right there at the timber and I couldn't get his attention for a long time. He was out there so far, but I finally got his attention with rattling at him. And he started kind of coming down the edge there. And every once in a while, he'd start to lose like he was about ready to go back into the woods. And I'd, I, I'd hit him with a snort wheeze or a grunt. And I kind of worked them back and forth. I brought that deer right into the DSD decoy and shot him right into the stand there. Now, it was a perfect scenario, but it was like 623 yards or something that that buck come on a string all on video. Just a beautiful 10-point buck. But that's a perfect situation where everything was just right. We had the wind. The buck come in. He pawed at the decoy there and just give me a perfect quarter and away, broadside quarter and away shot. And uh, he didn't go 75, 80 yards. So when you when you hit the doe bleat, do you yes, have sir. your your doe bleat with you there? I, I got it right here somewhere here. <laughs> How long? Demonstrate back. how long and loud you blow that. I'm not going to be quiet as, uh, should I say, like I'm trying to, unless they're out there in a, in a long distance where the only way I can get their attention is to hear that. But uh, um, this is the little, little closer call here. Now, I'll keep in mind, on all these calls, something else to consider is you can inhale or exhale. A lot of times I like this sound just like on a grunt call. 
I can get on it real soft. It gives it a totally different sound. I use this more down here in Arkansas. I actually inhale on the call. So just so you know, you can stretch it out. Same thing on this, you name inhale or exhale. But to, to answer your question, getting back to the call, I just. Depending on how loud I get with it is how far she is from me when, when I, and I'm talking about seeing one. Now, if I don't see one, I may just. Call back down. But it, it's a pretty loud call anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you position your decoy quartering two. That way, when the buck comes in and faces, you have a quartering away shot. Well, and, and that's what you want. He's either going to kind of stiff leg broadside if he comes to the head. But like I say, you can you can angle and play that any way you want to. And I've, I've shot him a lot. Now, especially if you don't have cover, uh, say you've got a tree there and you're on the edge of the field and you say, man, I wish that thing had some cover in it. Well, most of the time, if you place that decoy, the closer I place it to my stand when he comes in, he's locked on that decoy. He's not going to look up and notice you. I've had him to come in and hit the decoy, and this is what you got to pay attention to. If they come in and hit that decoy, be ready. Draw your bow as soon as he hits that decoy, because nine times out of ten, especially with the DSD. Now, some of them that made out of the hard plastic make such a noise it kind of spooks them if they hit it. But like I say, the DSD, I've had them to hit it nine times out of ten. They'll run 15, 20 yards, turn around, and like, what just happened? And there's your shot. But you've got to make sure you draw. As soon as he hits that decoy, you got to be drawing and ready to go, man. And, and get him get him stopped to get that and it's usually a quarter in the way or almost a broadside shot yeah so carl how far switching switching lanes how, can i address can i address something that philip was talking about there absolutely cool sure uh, you know th this idea of using the bleed particularly the pond bleed in the early season is deadly on does in archery yeah. season you know early yep. season it's absolutely, I use it when I'm coyote hunting and I usually call in a heck of a lot more does than I do, yep. uh, than I do does. And it's one you want to be very loud and very aggressive with. Yep. You want to make that doe think that something's, you know, something is, is attacking her fawn. And I've called in six, eight, 10 deer at a time with, with a fawn bleed, you know, all at once. So it, like I said, that's very deadly. I like his idea of using a doe call or actually a bleak call, you know, when you have a, a doe and a buck that are locked down. But one of the things I do want to address is that, you know, there's you can find them on the market. They have these, these calls out there called estrus bleats that these, you know, they're supposed to be sound of a doe that a doe makes in estrus. In 40 years of working with deer, particularly every fall working with deer and working with deer in heat and studying all that stuff, I have never heard a doe make a sound when she was in estrus as far as, a, you know, a bleat that would attract a buck. Now, what, what I think that, that, that why sometimes it might be successful is those calls somewhat mimic a fawn bleat, and that fawn bleat may be attractive to the doe, and then the doe would come in, and like Philip said, the doe may bring the buck with her, and that's why they you might have some success with them. But uh, you know, I, I I I would suggest staying away from this idea that you think there's a doe out there that's in estrus that she's walking around just <laughs> making all this noise, saying, "Come to me, I'm I'm ready for you guys." That just doesn't happen. She carries that scent with her, but she doesn't make a lot of noise about it. 
also think about it the exact same way we mentioned like a guy in a bar. Guys are vocal about, hey, I'm I'm here to find chicks. A girl don't walk into a bar and say, I'm just looking for a dude. Like that's they again, they'll throw up some signs, but they ain't walking in just saying, All right, where's my guy at? You know? Yeah. Um so very good point you brought up there. Um switching lanes, how far can a deer smell different scents? How good is a deer's nose? <laughs> yeah. That question is the million dollar question I get to ask all the time. How good is a deer's nose? And it's, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> Ten. You know, and, and it's it's a, it's kind of a complex way of, of getting, you know, to answer this thing. But one of the things is, you know, when you look at the number of sensory receptors that a deer has compared to what a human has, you know, there's been some studies that have actually looked at, you know, trying to count those receptor cells. And, you know, they're, they, they have come up with, you know, any numbers anywhere from 300,000 on up and maybe as high as a billion, you know, compared to us maybe having 30,000 to 50,000, you know, so just in the magnitude of the number of sensory receptors. So that's just part of it, though. The other part of it is for an odor to be smelled, it has to have a receptor site for that particular odor or class of odors. So there are, you know, there are receptor sites for a certain kind of compounds that might be indicative of one thing or something else. So deer have a lot of those sensory receptors, so they have obviously have a high, high diversity of them. But believe it or not, it's conceivable, but there, there may be some sense that we can smell better than a deer because we have more of those types of receptors. But the bottom line is just given the sheer number of, of receptors that the deer has, the size of their uh, olfactory epithelium, the size of the olfactory lobe in the brain, the part of the brain that integrates all this stuff and, and, and analyzes all this stuff for the deer is so much you know, superior to us. We can't even fathom what they get, what information they get. They live in a completely different world when it comes to sense. They use them for you know, predator avoidance, obviously, but even probably more importantly, that's how they find food. They don't, yeah. they don't look for acorns. They smell for acorns. They don't identify a, a, a plant to eat by its by looking in a dendrology book. They tell they know by the, the sense of smell, whether it's something that they want to eat or not. Now I've got two myths about scent that I want to talk about. Not myths, um, tactics. So I preach Carl, I, I'll know by your immediate response. I preach <laughs> peeing from your tree stand helps you. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> now, there's a there's a, a, a very interesting question. Actually, you know, when I see a scrape out there, I walk up and pee it in myself. <laughs> yeah. I, want that buck, I want that buck to know there's another dominant buck in the woods, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but even outside but, of the scrape. I just you know, I, and that's something I think a lot of people worry about that I don't know that they necessarily need to worry about is, you know, first of all, how does a deer know what human urine smells like? Yeah. Unless they're walking around in the woods, tracking a deer, and they can see that guy take a leak, you know, and then run up after the guy's leaves and smell it. He says, okay, now I know, you know, that, you know, that there was a human here. Okay, that's that's one aspect of it. Now they can probably tell predator urine from from you know not predator urine. We know that that there's a difference you know olfactory profile to them, but you know there's all kinds of other predators out there. You know there's coyotes and bobcats and bears and everything else out there, and just because that urine is there, which all these other animals are urinating as well, you know why does a deer care care if there was there's a place where it smells where something was? 
instead of where we're more we're worrying more about where that potential predator is you know, so the smell of urine you know is probably not that critical to them other than you know urine can be very important for in, in communicating among deer deer use urine obviously in, in their own communication as well and we'll get i'm sure we'll get into that aspect of it but i really don't necessarily well i i if I have to, I'll pee from my tree stand <laughs> just because I don't want something else. It's just going to make a deer want to use its nose to say, what is that? You know, just well, might might alert them somewhat. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't go to the extreme that a lot of people do. So hear me out. I actually try to pee as much as I can from my tree stand. A study by the QDMA uh, put out that at the moment of urination, you and a deer's pee are both X amount of percent ammonia, say 60, 70, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. And then within minutes, a couple minutes, it's 100% ammonia. So all they smell is that something peed in that area. And like you said, they can't tell it's a human. They can just tell something peed in this area. I've also had several deer come in while I'm peeing because all they hear is something peeing. All mm -hmm. they hear is the, the pee hitting the ground. They don't know if that's a doe. They don't know if that's another buck. They just hear the pee hitting the ground. And I've had deer come in while I'm peeing. So I actually try to pee from my tree stand as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and, you know, science doesn't agree that, 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 that the, you know, it's 100% ammonia at that point because there are all kinds of other compounds. We did a lot of work on looking at the, the, the uh, chemical profile of buck urine, doe urine, and so forth. And identified, you know, hundreds of different compounds in, in in urine. And you think, you know, urine is the dumping ground for everything that's going on in an animal's body, every compound in there. And it doesn't all change to ammonia. So some of it does, but not all of it. And you know, the fact that deer pee on their tarsal gland every day, and bucks, you know, pee, you know, constantly on their tarsal gland, and they take on that rut, and that is providing information, tells you that you know, there's more to urine than just ammonia. Right. So, and and we know that there's differences in the profile between predators and 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 herbivores, in in their urine profile. I mean that's why you go to the doctor, and he, he hands you a cup and say fill it up, boy. <laughs> you yeah. Know, what what he's doing is assessing everything that's going on in your body, and I think in some ways deer when they're communicating through the use of urine can do that same type of you know some of that assay as well. They might be able to tell the testosterone level of the particular deer that 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 urinated there, or at least some right. some level of his aggressiveness. You know. My next question is nose jammer. Have you ever you ever used it? Have any experience with it? I I, I stayed away from it. <laughs> really? How come? Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't pursued you know even investigating it. It just you know in in, in theory it sounds right, but there's just something about it that I I just I, I question and I, I haven't done any research on it. But like I said, when it, when an animal's an animal's sensory profile or an animal's ability to smell a smell is depends on the the um them having a receptor site for that particular odor and i, I just don't know that you can take something and, and jam every one of those different types of uh receptor sites right you know, that, so you know there there's some for higher volatile compounds and some for lower volatile compounds uh so it just doesn't seem to, to me to, that that's feasible Right. Now, I don't, Philip, do you have any, any, uh, any experience with 
nose jammer? I've not used I've not used a uh, uh, nose jammer. I'm, but I am kind of, maybe I'm old school, but to me, no scent is the best scent as far as when it comes to human scent. But I I can't honestly say I I do spray down, and I believe in using uh, a, a, a scent control. And I wash my clothes. I do all that good stuff um, as much as I possibly can. Shower. Uh, I feel like no scent is the best scent. I do want to go back, if you don't mind, real quick to uh, talking about the urine thing. Uh, I, I do mock scrapes year-round. I run cameras year-round, trail cameras, and I use them in video mode. And what I've noticed a lot, and, and Carl, you may have seen this too, but I can't tell you if the coyotes and bobcats that I have coming in to scrapes and they'll use those licking branches and scrapes here around the deer do. That's another thing I found out. And mm-hmm. but how many times have bobcats and coyotes went in there and either took a dump or peed in the in the deer scrapes? They gotta be something there, right? I mean, as far and it don't seem to bother the deer when they come in to work the scrape. Have you noticed any of that? Have you ever seen that? Well, I we, we I've I've never seen uh, I've, I've always seen some activity of predators at scrapes, you know, and it makes sense that they would be, you know, visiting those areas. You know, it's just like putting out, you're, like you're trapping, right? You're, you're using a urine base to, to, to trap a coyote or a bobcat. Uh, but, you know, your idea that the licking branch is used year-round, that's something we, you know, that was research we did many, many years ago. Uh, and that, that's very clear that there's some year-round communication going on among bucks at these licking branches, which those end up, during the rut becoming your 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 more important scrapes that are visible by a lot of different bucks <laughs> those are great things to monitor uh i got i got some video footage here back in june of a baby fawn uh obviously i'm sure it's a little buck fawn but he's on his back legs working this mock scrape and licking <laughs> that licking branch he had uh, he's using the pure white tail dust and he's got it all over his nose and stuff, but they are up in that, and it doesn't have any deer in it. Actually, uh, one of them has kind of got a licorice smell. The other one has the vanilla smell to it, and I don't know if it's a curiosity thing, but that little buck, I mean, I, I, I don't know. He was there probably for 30 minutes getting on his back legs and just working that head and eyes and nose up in them limbs. It's, and he's, he's barely big enough to, you know, he's not even a month old. <laughs> You so had I, it's crazy. You're rotting their teeth out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let me, let me just take a loop back to nose jammer. I've used it. Um, I believe in it. However, I don't use it to the extent of covering up my scent. I still, I'm like Philip. I wash, I wash, I wash. I hang my clothes outside. I leave my boots outside. I ozone, I do all that. I stay as scent-free as possible. What Nose Jammer does for me is it's a bit of wind insurance is what I call it. Uh, so I spray it on the tree behind me downwind or, um, you know, I don't cover my boots in it and cover my clothes in it and walk in. That's not how I do it. I will use it as a wind insurance. That way, if they do get downwind, it gives me that extra four or five seconds of what is that? I've, 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 I've covered up enough of my scent with that and again, I'm a hundred percent with you, Carl. There's no way to fully jam a deer smell. No way possible. But what I can do is give myself an extra five or six seconds of, of them trying to pick out my smell, uh, from that, 
from that nose jammer. And it just, it's a bit of wind insurance is what I call it. It's not, it's not full coverage. It's liability. Uh, but, but it gives me that extra few seconds if I need it to make a shot before they get, uh, busted and, and, and bolt out of there. So, um, hey, hey, Phil, or Dylan, given that this is, you know, a hunting one-on-one podcast, I, I think one of the messages that needs to be sent here is, you know, there's all kinds of gimmicks out there. There's all kinds of gadgets and all kinds Bingo. of things that you can carry into the woods with you to try to increase your success. But the best thing you can do as far as scent is be smart yeah. and minim- minimize your scent and two, hunt the, so you don't have to worry about it. If you're downwind of a deer, there's absolutely no way that deer will ever, ever smell you. He can't. So, you know, do your homework, hunt right. I'm all I'm a minimalist when it comes to hunting. I don't like to carry anything with me to the woods, uh, you know, as, as far as you know, a, a tool. And you know, you just try to use your head, and that's the most important thing. And doing the stuff that you can you're doing with these podcasts to educate these uh, these new yeah. hunters on Absolutely. yeah, how, how to deal with deer instead of how to use a gimmick to kill a deer. Let, let me make one thing clear. I was not promoting nose jammer. I was asking for myself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I've used it and wanted to know if there was any scientific proof behind it um, or if it was just another gimmick, um, which, again, I have found to work a little bit. But uh, I just wanted to know if there was any scientific backing to it. I don't know enough to comment on that. I'm sorry. I'm the same way. I've got buddies that use it and swear by it. And uh but I, I, I honestly, I, I can't tell you anything about it uh, as far as how good it works. All right. Carl, you did a really good job of telling us what, what all noises a deer makes. So what all scents do a deer make or create? Okay. That's even easier. There, we have identified seven different glands on the white-tailed deer. And then there's one other, well, actually two other sources of scent as well. The glands are pretty easy to describe. There's some of them that actually may not even be important scent-producing glands, but there's, you remember, there's three on the legs, three on the head, and one halfway between that. And the one halfway between that only occurs on boy deer. So you got a picture of where they are now? (laughs) The three on the the legs is the interdigital gland. That's that little pocket just above the or between the deer's digits, hence the name interdigital gland. That if you open it up, sometimes you'll see kind of a yellowish, cheesy material in there. If you stick your nose to it, it's got a kind of a rancid, uh, rancid butter aroma to it. Yeah. And you know, years ago we we did some studies that showed there were a bunch of volatile compounds that were put down that were emitted by that thing. And every time a deer puts its foot down, it puts some of those chemicals there, and those chemicals have different volatilities i know we're going to get technical here but what that means is these chemicals come off the track at different rates so a a fresh track will be will be highly dominated by the highly volatile compounds but they kind of run out over time so as as the track ages it starts getting more and more dominated by lower molecular weight compounds you know heavier compounds you know, so that might be how deer tells the age of a track or the direction of the track and how predator does the same thing that might be part of that we did some research after that and using more, some more sophisticated analysis and found not only were there just a few of those volatile compounds, but there was a whole bunch of other compounds put there. And some of those compounds we actually found were in higher concentration in uh, mature bucks during the breeding season than in immature bucks, which is kind of interesting. You think about what's going on in the scrape. You know, they, maybe they're leaving something there with their interdigital gland. 
Why, why else wouldn't they be scraping there, right? So that's that's one of them. But then moving up the leg on the outside of the deer's hind leg is the metatarsal gland, which is probably a vestigial gland in the whitetail. In the mule deer and the blacktail deer, it's much larger. And in the blacktail deer, it's been shown to be a source of an alarm pheromone. We did some work with that and never showed that that gland had any functionality in the whitetail deer. And we can go into some more detail what we did if you're interested, but it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's an important one to, to be concerned with. The next one on the deer's leg, on the inside of the deer's hind leg is the most important gland that the whitetail has, and that's the tarsal gland, the tarsal tuft, the hawk gland, whatever you want to call it. And that's that tuft of elongated hair on the inside of the deer's hind leg. One thing that deer do, and most people don't realize that all deer do this, even day-old fawns will urinate onto this tarsal gland. You know, and typically a doe will do it about once a day. Typically when she gets up from a nocturnal bed, she'll get up, stretch and urinate over her tarsal gland, then lick off the excess urine. And bucks will do it all year round as well. But during the peak of the rut or during the, the rutting period, the bucks almost exclusively urinate in this posture, particularly the dominant bucks. And that's where these bucks take on this characteristic rutting odor. And what you also notice is their, the, the odor of their uh, tarsal gland changes as well. And that is due to some changes in their physiology. Now, I know you don't want to get too technical, but I think this is a really neat story how God created something as unique as a buck stink. Because that, that, that odor actually doesn't arise from the tarsal gland. That odor arises from the urine. And it's an interesting way of how this happens is underneath those tarsal gland hairs are some very grossly enlarged sebaceous glands that kind of submit a kind of a fatty material. You know how your hair gets greasy after not a couple of days of not showering? That's that's that lipid material. Well, under the tarsal gland, they're grossly enlarged, and they go out, and that lipid coats those hairs. And what those that lipid does then is it extracts out of the urine fat-soluble compounds, which is kind of interesting, because in urine there are no fat-soluble compounds. There are fats because it's urine; it has to be water-soluble, right? That's how the body gets rid of that stuff. Well, how your body does that is, is kind of intriguing is your body takes stuff that's fat soluble like cholesterol, testosterone, estrogen, all these types of things, and they add a sugar or a carbohydrate to it and take a fat soluble compound, make it water soluble. And then your kidney can get rid of it. So when the deer is urinating, then it's urinating over its tarsal gland with all these fat soluble compounds or water soluble compounds. But now we got to get them to adhere to a, a fat to a fat. Well, how's that happen? Well, it turns out that there is a whole host of different types of bacteria on the tarsal gland, including some bad ones, guys, like listeria and E. coli and strep and you know, stuff you don't want to mess with. But there's another one called a carinobacteria that makes its living by breaking these bonds of these now water-soluble compounds and making them fat-soluble. And that allows them to adhere to the tarsal gland. But not only does it change them into a fat-soluble, it makes them have a very different aroma. It gives them a musky smell, the smell of the rut. So basically what's happened is what's going on in the tarsal gland is a picture of the hormone profile going on inside the buck. That's a, that's a neat way wow. to make something stink that bad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I really got a real technical, but it's just a neat story that we, we, we were able to pull apart. So what? how do, how do you use that? to better hunt, to, to be more successful on a hunt? 
you know, using using the tarsal gland of a buck during the rut, if especially if you have a fresh one. Now, you know, I don't know if you can get anything that smells like it commercially, but if you can find a fresh one and maybe even freeze it or or you know keep it from going getting degrading too far, it can be used in a decoy situation. Be excellent there. You know, here's here's not only do you have the visual, then you have the olfactory uh, uh, scent as well, the, the the challenge scent, and they're thinking, okay, that is another buck. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest thing or putting it, you know, putting that smell into a scrape as well as another challenge or a mock scrape. So what all sense moving up from the leg, what else do we got? Okay. Phil, you, I saw you nod your head. Did you want to comment on that or? Oh, no, no, no. I, I think you're, you're spot on brother. I'm, okay. I'm taking it all in because you're, okay. you're okay, the man that knows the anatomy of the deer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There's three on the head. Um, the other one that's real important to the white-tailed deer is the forehead gland, which is a region, it's actually not a gland itself, it's just a region of hair that has enhanced glandular activity. And that's the region between the ears and the eyes and the antlers. That patch up there that a lot of times during the rut will take on this rusty color. Yeah. A lot of people used to think that rusty was, you know, that was staining from, you know, tannins in the bark and stuff like that when the deer was rubbing. No, it's not. It's actually a material that's produced by a different type of, of gland called a, an African gland. And its job is to go out the hair follicle and go out and out the hair on the forehead. And then the buck uses that to deposit that, that scent on a rub or a overhead branch at a, at a scrape site. In other words, leaving a scent saying, you know, the tarsal gland is a, is a scent that the buck carries with him, says, this is me. The, the forehead gland is a scent that the deer puts out in the environment, says, I was here. It's more important for them to, to, to recognize. And we know that, you know, there have been studies that have trained dogs to be able to identify the scent of a buck on a rub for up to seven, seven, eight days. So that scent does persist out there. It's just a way of that buck to advertising his presence in his absence, if you follow me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That, that's, that's one of the neat ones. Okay, um, there's another one that a lot of people are familiar with, and that's the preorbital gland, the one right in front of the eye. Um, it, in some African antelopes, that's used as a, it's, they're very large, and they're used as a territorial marker. In whitetails, we haven't been able to show that this gland has any function for sure. Does that mean it doesn't? No, it may, maybe, maybe means we haven't been smart enough to figure it out yet. Um, but it might be something they use at an overhanging branch when they're working that overhanging branch to leave some type of scent there, or it may absolutely have no function whatsoever. And then the, the third one on the head is located just inside the deer's nose is a gland called the nasal gland, a very creative name. Um, that's if you look inside and peel back the deer's nose a little bit, you can look in there and you see this almond shaped structure. And this is a gland that has very large sebaceous glands as well. And we've identified that gland. We have absolutely no idea uh, that it has a scent producing function. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably more of a physical uh, function that it works as because it's given off that lipid material, that fatty stuff. It's actually used to, to help coat the nose and maintain, you know, like an uh, emollient to keep them keep the nose flesh because there's no hair on the deer's nose, right? And that's something that can get chafed really bad. So it's, it's probably more like a chapstick for a deer than, in, than a scent producer. Yeah. And then the final one that we uh, we identified was one that's located right inside the penal sheath of the male deer, obviously the male deer, um, and it's called the prepucial gland. 
don't ask me why we were looking there. Um, <laughs> but if you want to see this gland, if you notice up from a from a buck, usually you have a number of you know six, eight, ten long long hairs sticking out of the penal sheath of a buck. If you roll them back, you'll see where they're inserted in the skin. You might want to make sure nobody's watching you do this when you do this, right? But uh, you roll that roll that back, you'll see a kind of a cluster-like structure of, of for each one of those hairs. And there again are these large sebaceous glands. Now in fallow deer, it's been shown that this prepucial gland can produce a pheromone in the from the buck that affects the doe and brings her, you know, helps bring her in heat. We haven't been able to show that in whitetail that it actually has that function in whitetails. And again, I think this might be one more that um, probably has a structural function. Again, it's another opening that could have a potential potential for getting chafed and 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 you know some type of you know chapping and stuff like that. So it probably acts more of it as a a, a and more like a chapstick as well there. So basically, what we got is we got seven of them which two of them we think are the probably the two most important ones, the forehead gland for communicating presence and the tarsal gland for communicating identity. Now, what are the big scents that we as hunters need to know about? And then, Philip, how do we implement those um, to be more successful in the field? Okay. Now, the, the, two, the, the other scent that I didn't get into is, that, you know, and this is the one that's always the, the sold commercially, the estrus urine. Um, which, you know, every, everything that we have done in all of our studies has indicated that bucks do, or does do not communicate their estrus status to a buck based on her urine. And I can go through a number of reasons why, why uh, that, that, you know, that kind of explain this, but it always does make sense, though. If a doe is going to want to communicate her status as being in heat, why would she choose to do it with her urine, which she is placing, you know, 10 to 14 different places where she's been instead of carrying a source of estrus with her? Yeah. And that's what we found is that source of estrus, that, that scent that she carries with her emanates from her reproductive tract and it may em actually emanate from her entire body. She may just take on an essence of estrus that a buck knows. We've been able to take, take bucks, well, let me let me back up because one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that deer has has two noses, and they have a second nose in the roof of their mouth. It's called the vomeronasal organ. And if you look at the the, the upper palate, there's a little diamond shaped structure at the upper uh, uh, palate. And when a deer when a buck comes across a urine spot out in the woods, it'll take some of that urine up into its mouth. And what that actually does is activates a pumping mechanism that pumps some of that urine up into that vomeral nasal organ for analysis. And that's that Fleeman behavior that so many people have seen, right? You see that buck come up and he, he smells that dough, he smells her tarsal gland, he does that Fleeman behavior that said he's testing her for whether she's in heat or not. Well, it turns out that's probably not the case because. We didn't do this with whitetails, but every other animal that has been dissected out, that vomeral nasal organ actually doesn't access the part of the brain that affects a deer's behavior. It affects what it goes to a different part of the brain called the accessory olfactory lobe, which then goes to the part of the brain that controls the deer's reproductive physiology. In other words, the buck is getting information that's affecting him physiologically that he doesn't even know he's getting. But what it's doing is priming the pump. It's basically, basically, and I, 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 uh, I jokingly say it's more like a buck Viagra. 
because it makes him more willing, more wanting. It, it, it raises his level of uh, reproductive readiness. She wants him at his peak reproductive performance, right? And that's what she carries with him. And she then that Fleeman behavior helps to accentuate that. Then he's able to identify those those females that are in heat just from this from her from her smell that he gets through his nose. We've been able to go in and actually cauterize, you know, close off those the, the vormal nasal organs so they couldn't use it. And these bucks had absolutely no problem telling a doe in heat. They wow. knew those does in heat without using the vulnerable nasals. They don't need urine, but there is a scent, and that scent is probably coming from her reproductive tract, if not her entire body. So, what are you saying that dopey? When you go to Walmart and buy dopey, probably the most used scent in the world. It's a myth. Well, didn't you just say all urine is is <laughs> earlier say all urine's ammonia? <laughs> okay, now I wouldn't say it's a myth. The reason why it may be somewhat effective at times, other than, you know, one of the reasons is people put it out, they kill a deer, they said it must have worked, right? That's one. But, you know, deer are attracted to the smell of urine. They urinate on their tarsal gland. Urine contains information there. They urinate in scrapes. It contains information there. So urine itself may be attractive, but it may not be for the reason why it's all this stuff is being sold as estrous urine. And if you think about how all this estrous urine is being uh, is being collected, you know it's all mixed with a lot of other stuff in there as well, and it's basically uh, uh, basically decayed urine. So what the deer, what the buck smells is that there's a doe in the area. It just the, the, or you smell maybe that there, there's urine in the area. That I mean, I might want to check that out. What 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 see what that is? Not gotcha. necessarily that there's a doe in heat. Right. So, Philip, how do you take all of these scents? How do you use scents in the woods? Well, uh, there again, depends on whether I'm hunting a mock scrape or if I'm hunting with a decoy. But uh, say uh, a mock scrape, um, there again, depending on the time of year, I've got two that I use quite a bit. Um, one of them is called bedded up. And, and what it is, it's basically all the secretions where the deer bed up. Um, and they take that, and it just has all kinds of different deer smells. And I use it along with what they call power buck. And between the two, combining them, that's what I use for the mock scrapes most of the time when I'm hunting. And I don't know why. Uh, just seems like they want to come in and 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 go right to those scrapes when I when I do that. Um, and I have a system. If I'm using the dust, <laughs> I take my scent control which is uh, no scent if you will um and i use it as a spray well i'll spray the leaves with that and i'll put a little of the dust on that and then i'll also spray the ground slightly and put the dust on that that way it sticks to it don't know why but guys you won't believe the thousands of videos i've had in the last I, i've never used mock scrapes very much i've killed deer over them a time or two but the last two years it's been phenomenal what I've got on video because I run cameras on all the mock scrapes I put out. And by doing that, it's just, it's created, I don't know, it, it's like a bar and grill. All, like early season, all the bucks in the area, you know, and I'm talking, I'm hunting in, for instance, in Kansas, a 40-acre piece of property, 40-acre piece of property. I've probably got 25, 
30 different bucks on that during that July to 1st of October. I, every buck in the country comes through. So I get a lot of inventory. And by doing that, man, when I hunt it, they're already established. And these these scrapes, what I found is they, they use them year round. Whether they've shed their antlers in 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 winter, not but now there may be times they'll use them more. Now, I'm not saying they go into them every single time, but I am saying that they come to them. And I love it's changed the way I'm hunting. In other words, wherever I set up, I'm gonna probably have a mock scrape. Now, will every buck go to that scrape? Not every time, but I think a lot of times they come downwind just to kind of see who's in the area. And I think it by using, like, say, for instance, bedded up, it's got so many different deer smells in it. It's like a community, you know, coming to it. And I think it's really made a difference uh, in the way I hunt anyway. Now, if I'm using a decoy, just like uh, Dr. Carl talking about the tarsal glands and stuff, I wet those tarsal glands on my decoy, and I put that dust and stuff right on the decoy and also on the tail area. And a lot of times I'll put the dust on the nose of the deer if they come into the notes. And I think it does two, one of two things. It probably allows me enough time to get my shot, even if they do smell a little bit of human scent, you're trying to you're trying to minimize it when you're setting up a decoy, and it's pretty hard to do. But by doing this, what I've noticed is they're not they're not smelling human scent. I'm able to get the shots and they're coming in and they're smelling of the tail or the head, depending on whether how aggressive he is. And but normally that's going to give me the shot. And I think it's created two things. It's keeping the deer from smelling the human scent, but also giving enough deer smell to make them curious to go ahead and make them stand where a lot of times you can get that shot. And, so is that uh, just a, uh, is that like a Dominic buck, dominant buck scent that you're using there? It's, 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 it's what we call power buck. I think what it is, it's just the creations from the buck itself uh and i don't think that uh i don't think it's from one particular book however it could be i think it's probably where the you know they keep the bucks all summer probably in the in the same area where they're collecting all this and uh like bedded up same thing they're just getting that off the ground where they're bedding up it's probably got a little bit of uh the droppings the urine the whole smell of the deer where their where their bedding areas are um, is what I'm gathering from that. And, and that's the two that I like during the season. But off-season, some of this stuff that I'm using, I was talking about, you know, the, the licorice smell. And, the, I, you know, I think I mean, obviously there's no deer smell to it. Here in Arkansas, you know that. I'm in the CWD zone, so I can't use real deer secretions here anyway. And uh, so I have to use something that doesn't have deer urine or secretions in it in any way, form, or fashion. And uh, they, they make products that, that I've used that works just as well as the real stuff. So I think a lot of it's just curiosity and having something there in that area where you've already developed a mock scrape and they'll just continue using it, what I've seen year after year. Yeah. So, Carl, what, uh, what scrapes, not what scrapes, what scents do you use and how? Um, I got an easy answer for them, none. There you go. <laughs> I, I don't use any sense. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a minimalist, so I generally do not carry anything like that with me to the stand. Besides that, I'm cheap. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's the real reason. 
<laughs> so if you were going to though, so if you were going to use like a tarsal gland scent, um, you know, there's, there's hundreds of companies that make a tarsal gland scent. If you were going to use that, would that be kind of, because it, based off of what you said, that's the most like dominant scent uh, mm-hmm. because every buck's carrying it around. Would that be kind of your go-to or, I mean. I, I, I'll tell you what, given that I, I don't have, if I was going to go to find a commercial one, I have no experience with what's in any of those things. If I was a hunter and I wanted to get, have some tarsal scent, I would go to the, the nearest uh, uh, deer locker where, you know, people are taking their deer and, you know, find a time when there's some, some mature bucks in there and ask them if you can just go in and cut a couple of tarsal glands off of them, take them and freeze them. And then you have the real thing. There you, know? you go. It's a lot cheaper that way too. <laughs> there you go. Um, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you guys, I ask all of my guests for a hunting one-on-one tip, a field note, if you will. Fred Bear was big on his field notes. Uh, so what's one tip that I can take and put in my back pocket and make myself a better hunter with? I'm going to give you my dear one-on-one tip. And the reason I want to give you one is because it goes hand in hand with the butcher um, or the, the taxidermist or the, the meat processor, whatever. If you're going to hunt a new property and you're like, man, I don't know. Uh, you know, when should I go? When should I, I just picked up a farm in Iowa. When should I go start calling meat processors in the area and say, Hey, when do you get the busiest? You know, when do the most deer come in? Uh, when's the best time to be there? They give that information out for free because they don't, I mean, they don't have no skin in the game. In fact, they want people to kill more deer. So they're going to give you that information out for free. Hey, in the last 10 years, man, we've noticed that the second week of November is always when it, when it kind of heats up here, when things kind of get good here. Uh, so I'm big on calling meat processors, um, and, and asking or taxidermists and asking them, Hey, uh, what time of year do things really start picking up in your area? Cause I'm headed there for the first time and I wanted to know when they'll give that information out for free. Um, what are your deer one-on-one hunting tips? Who you want to go first? Go ahead, Carl. Um, My hunting tip, particularly for somebody starting out as a a hunter, is study the animal. Become a student of white-tailed deer, and you can pick up everything you can read. Particularly, you know, read a lot of the stuff on this, you know, scientific literature if you can, you know, or or some technical stuff. But even when you're in a deer stand and you're seeing a deer do something, ask yourself why that deer is doing that. Because there's a reason, and if you can't figure it out yourself, you know, start to you know start to investigate. But learning more about the deer is going to make you a better hunter, no question. But it's also yeah. going to make it a lot more enjoyable experience when you're in the deer stand. Absolutely, Philip. What do you got for us? Well, uh, I think a lot of what he just said as a hunter starting out, the more that you can be around whatever you're hunting, in this case, deer spend as much time as you can around, get as close to them as you can, uh, and get yourself over that nervousness, for one thing, as a hunter. And the more you're having deer around you, and that's what's helped me is becoming a bow hunter because it's such a close sport for me. And I've learned so much by watching the deer's behavior just by not shooting that particular deer. But I also want to say, when you're first starting out, you don't, you know, there's this myth of shooting a, a giant deer 
enjoy the hunt. Spend the time, enjoy the hunt. If it trips your trigger and it makes your old heart tick right here, pity patter, then by all means. And I love to eat deer meat, so that's why I shoot deer. But, you know, as a hunter, don't don't think that you have to shoot the biggest deer in the area to enjoy the hunt. Um, I think that, you know, as in the hunting industry, we've all put so much pressure on guys trying to shoot you know, big deer. Now what I do, I try to shoot the most mature deer. That's what I get out of the hunt. It may not have the biggest rack, but if I've got a deer that's five, six years old, that's, that's what I'm looking for because he's beat me for the last four or five years at his game probably anyway, but I get that opportunity to take a mature deer, but that, that goes with hunting, but just go out there and have fun, try different things. Don't, uh, whatever you're doing, if you're calling to a whitetail, it does not work every single time. And and don't dis- get discouraged if you run at one and he turns and, and tucks tail and goes the other way. Because the next one may have an t- entirely different attitude. And you may even hit that deer a day or two later and he, he's in a different frame of mind and come right in. So don't be afraid to try things and and uh, just just get out there and enjoy the hunt. Absolutely. Um, guys, before we go, I got to give a shout out to mine and Phillips, uh, mutual friends over at Woodhaven. Um, I have found them to be the best calls, um, Turkey and deer, the best calls. Listen, they're Christian owned and they're American made. You can't get better than that, but also they're phenomenal calls. So I would highly recommend you before this fall, uh, to check out their line. We've got the closer, which is their deer, uh, their, their, uh, doe bleat. We've got the woodsman, uh, which is a grunt call. I absolutely love it. Blow on that and show them how it sounds, Philip. Yeah. And there again, you can inhale and exhale on this one just as well. Uh, usually the main part is the wood right against your mouth. And you can also just different then, sounds that you can get. Yep. And then the call that you've heard both me and Philip blow already is the intimidator, which in my opinion is the best grunt call you can buy on the market by far. It's phenomenal. It'll be the best $20 you ever spent in the woods. I can't, I can't tell you. And I, this is not a salesman bitch. I can't tell you how many deer I've brought in with this, these, this call right here. It's, it's incredible. It's a great, great call. Gentlemen, thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, guys, I would highly recommend you if you did not check out last week's episode on necessary gear for the whitetail woods, I would highly recommend you to check that out where we were joined with our guys from Scentlock, and then make sure and tune in next week um, for post hunt success. What to do if you actually get a deer on the ground. Um, guys, thank you for coming on gentlemen. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll have a great week and make sure and tune in next week. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed it. Carl, thank you very much for your time. Uh, gained a lot of knowledge there. So uh, very good. It's been fun. I enjoyed it.